0: Welcome again to this season of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the audio files from the DocSF Experience 2022. I'm Dr. Stefan Obini, your host for this podcast and the founder and chair of DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. In this podcast, we're gonna hear from Kenny O'Neill, Partner and Principal of Digital Strategy, Transformation and Innovation at EY. He's gonna talk to us about human-centered design And this talk is part of our digital transformation series at DocSF. Let's join Kenny O'Neill on the DocSF stage. So the basic science, the basic science is, uh, is phenomenal. It's coming, it's going. We just wanted to give you a flavor for that. We had this line that Shauna came up with, which is the the science, the data that supports change, the data that allows us to move forward with conviction. And that's what we're trying to show you. But to move forward with conviction, you also have to have in your back pocket the skill sets necessary to drive transformational change. Digital transformation is the work that uh, our next speaker does on a daily basis. He says that he defines the future of what is possible for work, which is a fantastic way to describe your day-to-day work. He leads strategy for uh, smart health experiences at EY Global. And fun fact that I saw in your resume, I love this. Also, a friend of our friend, uh, another pilot, that he started uh, as an RAF pilot uh, way back when, flying over Scotland I right here. So please welcome Kenny O'Neill.
1: I think I think somebody was asking if there's a foreigner in the room. That's me. So um, yeah, not a local accent. Originally from Scotland, um, as my friends like to say, an interesting career where I started off flying jets in the Air Force back home and then had to grow up and get a real job and then uh, moved into healthcare consulting, that classic career direct trajectory. Um, today, I'm going to talk about the work that we do in the market. I'm going to talk about human-centered design, but how it then evolves into systems thinking. Because I think I think a lot of the time in healthcare, we tend to drill down on, you know, really kind of specific points, but then lose the the interconnectedness of the challenge that we have to deal with. So there's three things we're going to talk about today. Understand human-centered design and its applicability with some cross-industry examples. We're going to learn the foundations of systems thinking and how it relates to human-centered design. Then we're going to do a little bit of a envision the future health system, the 15-year view Put our point of view if we work what we were doing, and we kind of I'll tell you more about that at the end because um, it'll be interesting to see your feedback on that. All right, we're going to start with a little exercise first. So, well, if you can all close your eyes and three, two, one, what do you see? I see a blue stripy dress with kind of black in between. Can I have a show of hands who sees that with me? <laughs> That's exactly the reaction I was waiting for. Who sees something different? You said you saw something different. What do you see? Golden white. Anybody else in the golden white bucket? Yeah. Okay. Let's let's move on. Let's do another one. Okay. Close your eyes again. Three, two, one. I see a grey sneaker with kind of terrible turquoise trim. What does everybody else see? Who sees what I see? Yeah. Does anybody see something different? What do you see? Pink sneaker, sneaker with white trim. Is there any others? Does anybody see anything else? Same, pink and blue. Okay, so what I'm just trying to show is the same thing can look fundamentally different to different humans as we go through things. You know, it can just be as simple as you know um, a sneaker that looks different to everybody. And as you heard, I, I grew up in aviation, so I'm not, I wasn't like a formally trained human-centered design centered design thinker um, or human factors, but once you get into this environment, you have to start thinking about safety. How do I operate with the technology? How do I operate with another human? What does the information coming to me look like? How do I impart that? And then how do I operate in the bigger system of the air traffic control? Um, this is a seaplane coming into land. I think it might be in the Maldives and Mali. So it's uh, yeah, that's the retirement job I want to go for. But um yeah. So then let's talk about the journey that I went on. Given centered design didn't really touch aviation, you know, early on. I mean, just look at this cockpit. I mean, seriously, like it makes it really, really hard to digest the information and actually understand what's going on. And actually, it's pretty dangerous because if you're zipping along at seven miles a minute at 250 feet, trying to interpret that, you're onto a loser, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, I, I, when I've come into healthcare, I've been in operating rooms, I've been in ICUs, I see the same thing. I see all these different styles, displays, everything else just all mashed up. And, you know, it's just, it just doesn't play to the high reliability. So the journey I went on, and I really got quite deep into this within the Air Force, was first of all, right, what can we do with what we have in place? So you can see here, we put a multifunction display center of the cockpit, and then we widened the head up display, and then we made it possible so that all the actions I wanted to do could sit on my throttle and my um, cyclic, that can sit there. That was a game changer, because not only was the symbology designed for me to understand really quickly as a pilot and improve my capacity, but I could do everything still looking outside the jet. But secondly, I could then be more effective in this system, the interconnected system of the other jets, the people on the ground, and we could operate much better within this new ecosystem that we were building. And then... If it hadn't have been for that pesky kidney stone, um, I would have probably ended up in something like this, where, and, and it goes back to what we were just talking about, that human technology interface has been designed so well that you don't really have to worry about flying this thing. It basically flies itself. What you're now looking at is the information in a really good way to be part of the system, to make the system the most effective system that can work for whoever, whatever outcome that you're trying to get to. So that's a little bit on my journey. So human-centered design is building things for specific users and getting their input every step of the way. I think this is another part of healthcare where, where over the years, it's kind of like, yeah, we asked the patient um, or we asked the provider and then we went off and built something for four years and then came back and it didn't work. You know, why, why is that? It has to be a continuous process. You have to be engaging your users, you have to be understanding. You have to be working in an agile fashion, taking things back to them, testing it with them. Because, you know, what we'll do is say, no plan, survives first contact with the enemy. So you can't do, just don't take that long-term kind of waterfall method. We need to be thinking about how we continuously engage the users on this journey to really drive a fundamentally better way of developing human-centered design products, ways of working, and systems. And we also need to be unapologetically human. Keep the human at the center. And the reason I say human is because there's many humans across the pathway of care, not just providers and patients, it's administrators, it's social workers. Always think of that real multidisciplinary cohort of people. Keep them in the middle. And when you start thinking about human-centered design, think about it. Viability. Is there really a business case for this? Desirability. Who wants it? You no, know, Who's actually going to use this? Who wants to use this? Who's going to take it? Who's going to scale it? Who's going to be our you know, change champion when you do this? And feasibility, is it technically feasible? But there's another part to this. But on the tech side, what I find a lot is people say, you can't do that because. You can't do that because of HIPAA. You can't do that because of patient. You can't do that because of X. What we try and do is help them saying, right, fine. But how do we do it? So what do we have to do to make it happen? So tell me how this happens and what do I need to do? Right, I have to change policy. I have to get patient consent to share the data. I have to do this, this, and this. So again, really thinking about when I'm designing for the human, what do I do to make it happen rather than what is in the way of making it happen? And then you end up in this kind of mobius loop. So when you think about it, and going back to the point I made earlier about it's a continuous process, you're going back to the users. So empathize. Explore the human context, what's actually going on around you, what's going on in your ecosystem. Define what's the strongest pain points in that in that environment, what's happening in that ecosystem. And then you start ideating. So what forms can I do, the multiple boundaries of this ecosystem? And then you move into prototyping. Make a minimum viable product. Test it, get it out there, see what people say, and then you just go around the loop again. What was the effect of that MVP in the environment? We have to think differently. We really need to think about the extremes when we're doing this, not the average. So so think differently. Think about the most extreme case when we're thinking about this. So what happens if you do think about the extreme user? Well, if I design for somebody who's kind of challenged to use this, when I give it to a normal-bodied person, they're going to absolutely use it to become a superhuman. It makes them much more effective. You know, the typewriter, the straw, audiobooks, remote control, Google's autonomous cars, you can see there. They were all designed for people with disabilities, but they're loved by everybody because they make their lives so much easier or they make them fundamentally more effective in what they do. So let's go into some of those examples. The modern typewriter was invented by Pellegrino Turi. The Italians have um, invented quite a lot of good stuff. I'll give my due to the nation of Italy. Um, he needed a way to communicate with his blind lover who was unable to write in pen and ink. So he designed a QWERTY keyboard. But that QWERTY keyboard has become ubiquitous across the globe now. You know, So again, designing for an extreme situation and then you draw down to the use for everybody else has been really effective. Um, Joseph Friedman sitting at a milkshake bar with his daughter daughter's very small, she's trying to get up over the straw to actually drink her milkshake and he's like, this this is just ineffective. I can do this better. Takes a wire, wraps it around the straw. There you go, there's a bendy straw. So (laughs) it makes a real difference. But then when you take the use cases outside of that, people that are lying in bed, people that are sick, um, we can now use a straw to help them drink better. You know, All these simple things that you can do to think about designs. Um, Sam Farber, His wife had arthritis in her hands trying to peel potatoes or carrots or something with this terribly designed vegetable peeler. Well, Sam went, why do ordinary kitchen tools have to hurt your hands? just seems ridiculous. So he designed the OXO set of kitchen tools, which are amazing. I've got them at home. They make a fundamental difference Mm -hmm. to the experience that you're delivering. Again, designed for a a really challenging case, but everybody else finds them useful as well. They love it which helps everyone. And then one very close to my heart, because I, I scraped in on the height rules for being a pilot. In the late 1940s, the US Air Force had a serious problem because its pilots couldn't keep control of their planes. They kept on crashing. And everybody kept on saying that it was a control problem, but it wasn't a control problem. It was the design of the cockpit. Because they'd taken Quatlets for and said, right, we're going to design the cockpit for the average pilot. Therefore, we can, you know, have everything working around the average. They then went and saw four thousand pilots, and guess what? They never found one average pilot in those four thousand pilots. They had to fundamentally redesign the whole ergonomics of the cockpit. Again, think differently. Think for the extreme. You know, design the cockpit for somebody like me who scrapes in like by millimeters, literally millimeters. That was a quite stressful day when I got measured. But um, yeah, that's the kind of thinking that you have to do. Then I'm going to show you a, a quick video now. Does anybody know Steve Mahan? First ever self-driving car. Okay, so Steve's just coming out of his house. He got in his car. Um, and as you can see, Steve, Steve can't see. Steve is 95%. Um, he only has 5% of his vision. This is him looking, going, look, mom, no hands. So Steve's in with the, the team within this automatic car, and they're driving around. And he's he, he's just so happy because it feels as if he's some of those boundaries that have kept him locked away because of his disability have been moved. Um, I think at this point he says something like, let's go get tacos. So uh, he tells the car, let's go to the taco shop. You'll see in a second that he pulls in. This is him just, just talking about the experience. How it, and, you know, tacos are a good thing, so therefore let's pull in and get some. And you can see the car's really just got the laser on top. It's finding its way. And And one of the key things about this is That car has given its technology to all of our normal cars now. We have assist driving. So you'll know in your car, it it keeps you in the lane. It keeps you away from the car in front. You know, it's intelligent. It looks at your, I mean, some of the cars look at your eyes to see if you're nodding off as well. And they'll wake you up at the same time. All technology coming from designing automated um, cars for somebody with a real challenge. This is him going in. You can see him going in to get his dry cleaning this kind of design and human-centered design helps you think differently and helps people move back into roles that they have never were able to do. But when you think about this, it, there's a secondary effect that has actually saved people's lives because that technology is now being used in the system of motor cars as they drive around the country. Again, getting the human technology interface uh, correct, <laughs> yeah, need these tacos on the way, makes a huge difference. And this is him coming home now and basically back in. And he says, Yeah, it's it's absolutely changed my life. And this is this is what we should be doing to help people and, and use human-centered design to drive innovation. There you go, number one. So when we think about that design piece, design for the extreme users, and will make average users superhuman. So think about that in the 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 makeup of our population. You know, that five percent of the population that consume a huge amount of healthcare re- resources. If we if we design for the extremes, so think about that kind of multi-morbidity, chronic illness patient with dementia and um, social issues, if we can design for that person, then the next person coming behind them with only you know one or two kind of issues, it's much easier to pull down from that thinking and that design to actually help those people and then pull down again for the much lower acuity, bigger population. So again, always keep this in mind as you're thinking about that kind of journey on human centred design. Now we move into systems thinking, and I've, I've alluded to it already, but and I, I should say I stole this from Disrupt Design because I thought it was such a great slide, so I've completely stolen it. So systems thinking. We tend not to do this at scale within healthcare, especially, you know, even it doesn't matter if it's government-led systems, it doesn't matter if it's commercial thing, um, systems. It just doesn't tend to happen that well. People tend to think in the ways of the disconnected parts of the system We think linearly. We don't think in cycles. We think about the silo that we're in. So how do I do something in the silo that I'm in? We think about if it was a jigsaw, we think about our little part of that jigsaw. And we think about analysis on a point of the system, not not wider. And we think in kind of isolation. But where we should be thinking as you develop your system thinking and think about the knock-on effect, it's about interconnectedness. It's about circular thinking. It's about keeping that agile thinking going because it's not one and done. This is going to continue as time goes on. It's about thinking about the emergence of all these different data points across silos that we need to understand. It's about putting the jigsaw together, not your one little part of the jigsaw. And it's also about synthesis of all the data points in the system and the relationships that go with them. So I've been really lucky in my career to be able to work in many different countries across the world. I've been in the US for the past five years, but really thinking about how how does technology help systems thinking? How do we play with the care model and redesign the care model to be more integrated, to reflect the needs of the population for that multidisciplinary model? And then how do we use the technology to really like curate and navigate the patients through the pathway of care in a fundamentally better way, better experience. And lastly, how do, how do we help the providers? How do we take the burden off of the providers? How do we help the providers have less admin stuff across? I mean, I mean, for an example, I'm working with a big health system just now, and we're looking at the core leaders, and we use the nurse manager as the most complex persona. And these nurse managers are trying to manage their day-to-day work across 36 systems. And it's taking up 65% of their time. These are skilled clinicians that should be at the bedside and supporting their teams, and they're not. But actually, if you take a system thinking point of view and here, match systems thinking with the human-centered design, okay, systems thinking is, these people could be force multipliers, especially in the staffing crisis, to improve patient experience and drive better outcomes. That's what they should be doing, right? So if I'm looking at human-centered design, let's get them in a room, let's understand their day-to-day work, let's job shadow, let's really get that granular view. And then let's think about how we can aggregate what they really need to do into like a mission control function. And by doing that, suddenly we're going to give them back a couple of hours a week, even with just the minimum viable product. That's another couple of hours for them to go and spend on the front line, which is so important just now. I I don't need to tell this room. So it's really think about how human-centered design then connects up to the system, the interconnected system, and we really have to think think bigger about knock-on effects. EY, we think about this a lot. It's one of the things that I really enjoy about how does the system work? How do you bring it together? How does the system evolve? And instead of blasting a PowerPoint at people, we tend to just use the um, technology called Mural, which is usually used for facilitation. But we actually use it to bring all of our thought leadership together about the case for change, population pressures, the economic pressures. I mean, somebody mentioned that earlier on around $8.8 trillion is spent globally on healthcare, of which 3.4, sorry, no, 3.8 trillion it is now, 3.8 trillion is spent in the US. The US is taking up nearly 45% of the global spend on healthcare. Again, GDP is going through the roof. It's a real challenge. The population's getting older more complex. By 2030, you'll have a deficit of nearly a million nurses and about 120,000 physicians. Now, those stats came before the great resignation. So I think it's actually going to be worse, especially with 3 billion people coming online across India, China, and Asian countries that want Western healthcare, if you like. So when we think about the human at the center, as you can see here, the data that flows around a human eg how do we help make better decisions for what the human needs because just now we really only have 20% of the health data there's 80% of the data we need for wellness which sits outside the clinical record and then when you put all these bits together and think about digital and platforms what does that ecosystem look like so going to the question about what does it look like in 15 years i would say that's an interesting an interesting concept because i think what it looks like in 15 years is achieving scale. I think there's already people on the journey towards what I'm going to talk you through just now. But definitely in 15 years, we'll see this at scale because um, people will have to change. They're just, it's not like you're going to be able to build a few towers and if there's no staff around to to fill them. So again, a lot of healthcare organizations across the continuum we talk to, we talk about this duality of growth. So having managed a medical division at Imperial in London for nine months as a part of a secondment. I know how hard it is. It's so operational. There's a firefight every day just to get through it, to manage it, to, to make delivery of great care is really operational and hard. But the world is changing. So therefore, the duality says, at the same time you're doing that, you need to innovate and create a fundamentally different model of care for tomorrow. You need to double run. And you need to find some way to create the capacity to do that. And when you're doing that, think about the human, because just now we're basically reacting to them. We're reacting to give them sick care. If we truly want to lower the cost of care, we have to get into the wellness game. We have to lower the frequency of people going to the high-cost areas of the health system. So just now we've got kind of 20% of the data in the care record. We need to be getting the health behaviors. We need to be getting the social data, the behavioral data. And the environmental data. That's the other 80%. And this is what people are trying to do with the platform now. So as you can see on the ecosystem that we built there, what under, underpins this is the use of platforms at scale, like Ping An in China that has 300 million people on a digital first healthcare system that you basically come in through digital channels, you share your data, and then you're curated and navigated to the right place at the right time. Like the Estonia model, you know, blockchain-secured um, blockchain um, healthcare system where the patient owns all their data, they can give it on the phone, they give access. There's, there's many more examples. We're building the French one. We're building the one for the largest insurer in Germany. This is happening in different places around the world. Um, the open-air platform um, style, so open platforms above EMRs, that is taking off in Europe at a rate of knots. The NHS has just signed up for it in England, Scotland, and Wales. There are actually three different NHS systems. Just interesting fact for you, there is no one A- NHS. So underpinning this future health system is the platform. The platform helps you aggregate data, and it also helps you translate the data into the similar data model, so you can start using your AI, your machine learning, and your robotics. But so what? No, it's all about the care model. So let's talk about how that actually affects care. So down in the bottom left, you can see there's primary care, but in its widest sense, um, there's already a deficit of primary care physicians. So we're going to have to think about that model and make it multidisciplinary. It doesn't matter what country you're in the world, there's a deficit everywhere. So how do we use pharmacists? How are we using nurses and nurse practitioners alongside the primary care physicians? And at the same time, pulling in specialist expertise to help do minor procedures within that more polyclinic primary care model. But it doesn't really work to change the system if we don't have it really have a symbiotic relationship with the home. So, when we're designing this again, what do humans want? Well, if we're making healthcare, what's human centered design? Well, actually, people quite like being in the home with their family in the safe environment. Okay, what can we do to keep people there? Right, let's make it a smart home. And people used to say, well, oof, you know, especially in Scotland, you know, geez, that's a lot of money to spend on a smart home i don't want to do that you can do it for literally a couple of hundred bucks now which is a whole game changer it doesn't have to be a new home it doesn't have to be an old home you can do this with any um place that people are living i still remember like one of the examples from um we we restarted this journey like 10 years ago in the uk and this, this copd patient was just coming back again and again and again to ed and get admitted the reason was because he was going home to a damp, cold home that he couldn't afford to heat every time. It wasn't his condition. It was social situation. But once we actually tied the social data with the medical data, voila, right, let's get down. And then he wasn't coming back again. So thinking about that, insights from sensors in the home, you know the evolution we're seeing hospital home grow, I think that's just going to keep growing. So all these different procedures to manage people in their home, um, even 3D printers in their home for minor, you know, casts and supports um, after you've done some kind of visit, be it physical or telehealth. So that's the foundation, right? I'm going to build off of this. This is my um, new primary care model that's primary care, smart home, and it's connected into the social and behavioral ecosystem that people live in. So I'm I'm thinking about the human I'm making it easy for the clinician as as well because we're trying to use decision support tools to make it easier for them to make decisions to actually look at um, imaging and get insights from the imaging. But then you need that kind of quarterback for the system. And that's the bit you can see in the middle of the ecosystem there. That's the digital hospital. Now, these are here now, like version one, version two, different parts of the world. Intermountain, I was just seeing that the other day. theirs goes from the ICU all the way down to the home. That's what we're seeing in this system. But it's going to be much, much more mature. It's going to be multidisciplinary. It's going to have touch points. It's going to be predictive to understand the longitudinal data trends so that we can see people beforehand and they can direct teams in the community to go and see people in the home. Because, you know, just look at what Amazon are doing with their primary care. You do the digital consultation, but then you don't have to go to the building. They come to you. So that human experience is much better, and this is what I think. This is what we're going to see as these generations change, rolling through into this new model. Um, at the same time, pairs have a bit of a existential crisis on their hands. They have to show that they can provide value, and just now they're struggling. But I see the UHG's, the Humanas, the, the Sentines of the world thinking about. How do I then incorporate the digital hospital and control of, and control that primary care into my model to become a pay provider, to actually then become the orchestrator of the system? So there's part of this happening in the payer landscape, and there's also part of this happening in the big health system landscape. Who will win? Open to you. But I think there will be many of these systems operating under you know a big platform and then localized um, networks um, operating very of interest to this room is we really do think that out of hospital surgery centers are going to roll up into national scale that intelligent symbiotic relationship that we alluded to between the pilot and the aircraft and the technology i think that will be the case with the surgeon the ai and the robot working together to drive fundamentally better outcomes more efficient operating processes and 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 doing it at scale you know, really driving scale and better outcomes and lower cost across this ecosystem. Um, one bit one bit I haven't heard people talk to yet is the precision medicine side of things. So T cell therapy, you know, a lot of genetically based treatments for long-term conditions. By 2026, there's going to be 600 products in market. So by 2020, 20, 2035, this is going to be scaled. So again. A lot of stuff that goes to hospital just now, oncology, some other kind of complex, you know, um, conditions. They won't be going to the classic hospital anymore because a lot of these people will be immunosuppressed. So I'm not going to send them to the hospital because it's full of infection. What I'm actually going to do is introduce a new facility into the ecosystem: the precision medicine facility. You know, that clean facility, that truly digitally enabled facility that I literally come from my house at the right time, walk in, get my blood taken get back home again. The blood goes through the intelligent supply chain to know where it is, who it is, what temperature it is, who's oper- who's working with it, and send it back to me at the right time in the right place to get my infusion for my CAR T cell therapy. That's going to be a real change in the kind of flow of patients for the ecosystem in our point of view. So with all this activity shifting around this new ecosystem, what happens to the hospital? We're already starting on this journey. Uh, we did a project with Erasmus in the Netherlands to reduce their capital fin- footprint and actually start weaving in computer vision in rooms, um, artificial intelligence within the operating rooms, um, use of digital tools for the patients and providers to really take the admin burden of you know, just getting to the hospital, getting admitted and getting back out again. You know, taking the pain out of that because at the same time, with the staffing crisis we have, we really don't want nurses following up by phone on post surgical patients. Now, is that really the best way to do it? We should really be thinking about there's a digital layer that, that works for the patients initially. And then, if you really kind of, if a patient says my pain scale's off the chart, yeah, then we can speak to people. So, again, a lot of the work within this ecosystem is trying to move these people back to the top of their license, be it a social worker, be it a orthopedic surgeon, be it a nurse practitioner, we don't have enough people. So let's enable everybody to work back up their value chain towards the top of their license and drive better outcomes and really bring the cost of care down. Because the way that I the way that I'd say this in, the, in another slide is imagine a high frequency, high amplitude wave. That's where we are just now. We're not going to stop people going to the hospital in high cost areas. But what the wave looks like in the future, with the, the, the amplitude being the acuity level, is the amplitude comes down because we're getting to people earlier. So therefore we can have therapeutic solutions and the wavelength extends because we're not going to go to the hospital as often as we do just now, because literally it's kind of a free for just now. Because you see somebody, you know, you see somebody once a year or twice a year, and then when you feel ill, you just end up going to the ED, because the ED is a proxy for primary care in many different places around the world. So if we do this right, this ecosystem starts to generate real-time data. And this is what's happening in the Manchester area of the UK just now. This is what they're piloting. Um, so that real-time data is translating into real-world studies to show the outcomes and the effects of these new clinical models. So there's a real opportunity to you know, not get stuck in randomized control tiles for years, but actually use real-time data to get real-world studies and make Great decisions from that. There's another example and you should look at is Canterbury in New Zealand starting this journey a long time ago, 10 years ago. And they basically suffered a massive earthquake where they lost about half of their hospitals. But because it started on a very, very early version of this, they coped because they'd already said, right, the community in the home is key. We need real-time analytics to show what we're doing is right or wrong. And and they used it and they coped while they rebuilt their, their health system. And the last bit is funding. We we definitely think there's going to be a push towards away from fee-for-service significantly. And we think that's going to start in a couple of years because the Medicaid trust fund runs out. So the policyholders are already looking at what's going to change in Medicaid from fee-for-service to more of a bundled or episodic payment. Hospital at home, we're seeing in the market, is more I'm trying to work around that 30-day bundled payment. So we're seeing more initiative towards, well, value-based care, but I just call it normal payment models because that's what happens in most of the rest of the world. You're kind of episodic payment with maybe some kind of top-up for outcomes. But I really do see a a real push um, at this point, a significant, firstly, more episodic slash value-based care. I think the government will be paying for more of this care as well because of social pressure. I think um, there'll be a big push around nationalized healthcare by this point, when you think about the, the generations coming through and voting, So that's um, a quick overview of human-centered design, how human-centered design then ties into system thinking, and then our thoughts from the work we're doing in different places around the world and here around how that ecosystem might look in the future. So thank you very much.
0: That was exceptional. Oh, thank you. <laughs> extremely well designed, well delivered. I really enjoyed it. Towards the end, it was becoming clear that the future is here. It's just not distributed evenly. We're seeing, we're starting to see elements of it. Maybe not in the United States, in other countries. Mm. One statistic though just blew my mind: is fifty percent, or about half, of the world's healthcare spent dollars are spent in the United States. Yeah. Like that's interesting. I was honestly just something very practical. Something about human. I want to get back to the human-centered yeah. design piece yeah. and give me an example of one uh, hospital system or group that you work with where you can. You can point to one human-centered design uh, approach that really yielded positive outcome, a good uh, transformation, especially if it happens to be a digital transformation.
1: Yeah, um, I can talk to, I can't, I can't tell you the name, but I'm not aware, a west side of the US multi-state hospital association that um, starts with e E&Ns in <laughs> Like all healthcare system I've been in, onboarding of staff is terrible, terrible experience. It takes a long time, it's messy. Nobody knows where they're going or what's happening. And the, the system we were working with was losing staff because of it, both in the onboarding process and then a very high rate of attrition within the first three months. And going back to the systems thinking, um, remember the one on silos, yeah. you know, people thinking in silos, that's what was happening. They were thinking, well, IT has to solve this. Well, no, the business has to solve this. And we went and had a conversation. There was two new buyers from Microsoft, and senior levels in the IT department, and we said, "Listen, this is this is a human-centered design problem, right? You're not designing this process for the people that are coming in. You're not understanding the personas that you're dealing with, and actually, you don't have anything to connect the dots across this this journey, this system journey." So, what we did was do ethnographic research. We use a tool called Service Design Blueprint, which basically shows you the experience, the points of contact. Um, the actions at that time. And then there's like the back of house and how they connect through to the systems use. And long story short, for using that methodology, we took a week off the time to recruit people and get them in the door. Their identity access, so they were they were starting with the right systems. Because you know you get in to do a job and you don't have EMR access, which is a bit of a challenge for a physician. And their kind of MPS score went from 30 kind of odd to 85. And now they're rolling out across the whole ecosystem. And again, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a clinical side, but I think it's just as important in the environment that we are today with the staffing crisis, is to give providers the best experience on that kind of hire to retire journey, to make them more effective, so therefore you get better patient and, you know, really improve that
0: experience all around. Well, thank you, sir. Appreciate the discussion. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this presentation, and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DocSF 2023, when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DocSF, join the revolution.